I like blue aliens. I cannot lie. Mm. All you other readers can't do that. No. When a walks in with a big blue tail necklace in your face, we get excited because we're talking about aliens again. Okay, that I'm excited. Bye. I sound like a chipmunk right now. <laughs> Welcome back, listeners. Happy New Year. Woo, we made it. We did. It's 2022 officially now. Oof. May this year go better than last year. We'll see. I'm not making any promise <laughs> any promises <laughs> jen is god <laughs> oh my goodness but okay this month it's all about aliens we're doing one of our favorite things we're talking mm-hmm. about aliens back in july of 2021 we touched on the rise of paranormal and we hinted a little bit into why aliens became so popular and how they became their own subgenre and sci-fi romance too of course mm-hmm. now i'm gonna take you all down a black hole and into the outer reaches of the galaxy <laughs> with this discussion see it's my turn to do the puns <laughs> We're going to look at what makes scales, horns, spurs, fur, and all those other outlandish tendencies worthy of romance books. Strap in, little lads. We're taking it to warp speed. (laughs) Hey there, romance nerds. Welcome back to another episode of Raging Romantics. I'm Jen. I'm Jackie. And this podcast is brought to you by Northern Onondaga Public Library. In this podcast, we're going to be talking about all things related to Romance Landia. With that being said, please be aware that sometimes our material may be a little too sensitive for younger listeners. If you need to wait until they go to bed, we'll still be here for you. So without further ado, are you ready, Jen? Oh, I'm ready, Jackie. All right. Let's rage! You know, it, with those qualities, it's kind of funny that that's associated with aliens because I feel like the the common stereotype of aliens is the little gray man with I or like a I, little green or yeah, yeah, which I would assume like with the big big black eyes and like the which f- I mean, smooth skin. Ruby Dixon does. She that's has true. the orange like basketball headed ones. Yeah, the Uli. Sorry, I just was kind of like I kind of laughed a bit when you said fur because I was like, it's funny because I feel like when I know people talk about aliens, they don't have furry. They aliens. don't think fur, mm-hmm. but. Yeah, there's a lot of fur in a lot Sorry, of alien we're, books. We're wasting this for the... There's a tangent already for you. <laughs> um, but yeah, yay. Hey, romance nerds. Um, oh, wait, are we officially starting? You didn't say the the music part. Oh, music here. <laughs> music. Okay, sorry. This is bad. This is bad already. <laughs> well, this okay. is what happens when we're coming on a day off again. We haven't done this in a while. Ugh, yeah, for good um, reason. Right. Anything to catch anybody up on, Jen? From Wait, we haven't done it. What? The Hey Jackie. Oh, I'm sorry. <sighs> it's been so long since I've done a me episode. I forgot how this works. <laughs> hey Jackie. Yes. How do you make an alien's baby sleep? How? You rock it. <laughs> you gotta rock it. And there's all the babies in Dixon. <laughs> I also just envisioned Rocket from Guardians of the Galaxy, the raccoon. <laughs> I'm so oh, funny. That was a good one. Thank We're you. We're back to gen jokes. I love it. <laughs> They've never left. It's beautiful. Thank you so much. I always have to be genuine, you know? <laughs> genuine. <laughs> oh, this is going to be interesting. Well, we are starting a brand new year. Mm-hmm. Do we have anything to catch readers, listeners up on from the end of 2021? I mean, it has been a whole year since we talked. Oh, it's wild. <laughs> it has been almost a whole month, though, since we sat down and chit-chatted. Yeah. I had a lot of vacation time to use up, so. 
I just disappeared. Hello. Hi. Yes. Um, welcome back from post-editing Jackie here coming at you. Um, I just wanted to do something really quick and say that as of the time we are recording this, editing this, some stuff has gone on recently with Ruby Dixon, Kindle Unlimited. Um, the weekend of January 1st, January 2nd, actually funny enough, right when we recorded this, started a new year, um, Kindle Unlimited took down all of Ruby Dixon's things with no warning and no recourse. Um, and she couldn't get a hold of anybody. As of Monday, January 3rd, the books have been reinstated. Um, she is missing ranks as well as a few other things according to her end. But her books have been reinstated. There was a big hoopla raised about this though. So we will be talking about the issues with Kindle Unlimited Publishing in our upcoming publishing month. Okay, back to the episode. I do want to shout out, we had some listeners mm -hmm. email in to oh, us. Oh, yeah. Thanks, guys. So if you emailed, thank you. We appreciate you as always. We had from some someone, I just forgot how to talk, sorry. We had someone from Chile email I'm us. And Guatemala, too, in right? Guatemala. Yeah. And, and my friend in the Netherlands emailed me, and she's like, oh, my God, this was great. I was like, oh, my God, thank you. Does it still count if it's your friend, though? She's mean to me, so. <laughs> Lika, I'm talking to you. <laughs> Anyways, I think we've gone into that tangent long enough, Jen. Mm -hmm. Are you ready to blast off into the world of sci-fi, romance, and all things alien and Specifically strange? why I came in today. Yes. So I, I hope I so. Know, I know. I did make Jen come in on a Saturday. <laughs> Thank you, Jen, for coming in. Yes. Um, now, I'd like to make it clear that Jen was the person who first introduced me into the world of sci-fi <laughs> romance, like modern sci-fi romance. It's my fault. And most importantly, into the world of Ruby Dixon. Mm -hmm. So, Jen, from the bottom of my heart, yes, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> you are welcome. What can I say except you're welcome? Okay. No. Did it, did it. Nope. <laughs> All right. You know, I kind of still remember the day you first introduced me. Wow. It was in the I truck. Don't. We yeah. were leaving mm -hmm. one of your. Okay, so when I say the truck, I mean the book truck, mm -hmm. listeners. Yeah, Jen, I don't just own a truck. No, no. Jen owns a little purple little car. Subaru. <laughs> Subi. Um, no, but we were in the library pop-up truck. It's a book truck. Mm -hmm. It's really cool. We were leaving like um, one of those day camp thingies. Yeah. And we're like, have you ever heard of Ruby Dixon? I wonder if it was the YMCA one. Because maybe I now I can remember this. I think it was. I just love that it's seared into your brain that much. It is a pivotal moment in my character arc. <laughs> <laughs> It's your it was origin the day everything story. changed. <laughs> and since then, I've become very addicted to Ruby Dixon. Oh my, she's amazing. I, it's super easy, too. And she is somebody, too, who's so prolific. It's very easy to just get sucked into her world. And because of her, too, there's... Because of her? That sounds really bad. But there's so many other ones that you can start getting into from her. And Amazon, of course, the algorithm knows you yeah. so well when you start reading right. this much. And on your suggested, it'll just be very similar themes. Mm -hmm. And they just all feel comfortable to pick up At for this point. being so strange <laughs> in their tendencies. <laughs> I mean, an alien gladi gladiator mm -hmm. with fangs and a tail. And yeah. you're like, yeah, yeah I'll sure. Go for it. sure. Why not? Take me. I'm yours. <laughs> or I've seen a lot of like the furry cavemen on, on alien planets. Yes. Those have been popular. Like now, the the markets I've seen a lot. Nannies now. I oh mean, my gosh, those are huge. <laughs> like my human nanny. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, it's really funny just how we went from it being this umbrella under paranormal to now really sci-fi romance is its own thing. And it's I, so wide. I wonder how we could have gotten there. Don't don't you wonder that, Jen? You know, that is something I've wondered about a lot. <laughs> 
Well, it's a good thing we're talking about it this month then. (laughs) It's a good thing I took three weeks to compile these notes. Yes. I'm excited to to (laughs) listen to the full story because I don't know it. And to be fair, Ruby Dixon is really the only sci-fi person I like. Yeah. I'm not a sci-fi person. I don't really like technology now, even dealing with my phone and like this mic and stuff. Um, (laughs) There's a reason I do all this stuff. (laughs) Jackie gets to laugh at me for like five minutes just trying to put these headphones on. It's not my thing. But Ruby Dixon, I think, because... It really ends up being more about like family and connection and Yeah. And there are comfort reads by yeah. now. I mean, I've reread Ice Planet Barbarians, I mm-hmm. think, four times by now. Yeah. And I'm on my third reread of mm-hmm. Ice Home. Jen still hasn't finished Ice Home. I'm sorry. I'm savoring it. Because once I read it, it's over. Then you can reread it. I know. And reread it again. I know. And Ruby but you can only read it once. Spoiler the first time. alert, Ruby has said that she is gonna keep writing. I know, she will forever. I'm so happy. So happy. So glad. Yes. Um because, spoiler alert, we got to talk with Ruby <gasps> exclusively. <laughs> but, um, unfortunately, you do have to temper your excitement slightly on that one mm-hmm. because we didn't speak to her mano a mano yeah, um, because she's an extremely busy person mm-hmm. and she is an amazing person yeah. and we did not want to stress her out more than we probably <laughs> already did. So we did go to exchange a flurry of emails and puns and screaming. Mm-hmm. And okay, the screaming was on my end. Um, she sorry. might have been screaming. You don't know. That's she true. could have been really excited to get some smart questions and not just like, oh, you write a lot of blue alien porn. Hoo, hoo, hoo. Do you and your husband do that at home? Because, you know, I'm sure a lot of really unsavory people from the media. Oh, she said her stuff that. Like, yeah, and exactly. Like her other interviews, she talks about how, mm-hmm. like, especially a lot of, like, male reporters. Yeah. This, okay, so this is, like, giving you a preview of what this next discussion is going to be for oh, the sorry. next episode. But a lot of um, reporters, especially after June, where she blew up on TikTok and mm-hmm. Instagram, um, they started like asking those really skeevy questions yeah. of, like, where do you get your inspiration for the intimate scenes? Ugh. After you write this, do you and your husband do that? <laughs> Ew! And she was like, you would never ask that of a male author. Yeah. I doubt Nicholas Sparks has had those questions. Exactly. <laughs> or James Patterson. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, <laughs> back, to, back to the Ruby thing. <laughs> Guys, I just have to say... If you get a chance, she is an extremely amazing person. She mm-hmm. responds to like every single message I've ever seen yeah. on her social media. She deserves every single bit of attention and like success. fame and success mm-hmm. that has come her Absolutely. way. At least in our personal opinion. <laughs> and um, you'll get a peek into her writing process in the next episode. I apologize. This episode went a little longer than expected. <laughs> um, but I just want to say that before we get into anything else, her work ethic, her dedication to her craft, everything is so astounding. So, you know, this might sound like a fan page for Ruby Dixon. It kind of, of a is. Podcast. It really is. It That's how is. Jen and mine's friendship yeah. got started. Ruby. That's how we started bonding over romance mm-hmm. books was I was like, oh, my God, Jen, what did you tell me about today? <laughs> Who the heck is Vectal? <laughs> it was a built blue alien smut. I think that's a good foundation for anything. It is a great start yeah. to a friendship. Yes, yes. Um, so, you know what? If that's going to be a fan page, then that's I'll what it's it. going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but we will spend this whole month looking at other alien romances and sci-fi romances, mm-hmm. not just the phenomenal Ruby. Um, more importantly, I personally really wanted to examine the phenomenon that is sci-fi romance in general because it's something that, like a lot of the romance industry, isn't taken seriously yeah. at all by wider literature cir- what circles. What a shock. They don't see the literary merit in blue studs. And if anything, I feel like sci-fi romance especially really gets put down upon like little else except for maybe smut. Mm-hmm. But if you combine smut and sci-fi romance, well, then you just created the butt of every single literature joke out there. 
That's a really good point. Right? I feel like... Especially because, and we'll talk about like sci-fi and gatekeeping yeah. and male authors. Yeah, and I was going to say that later on. I feel like we've had so many stories of gatekeeping from specifically the sci-fi community. I was, I'm thinking back to when one of those awards were given to like a black author and everybody rose up and had like the sad puppy awards. So I never, I never thought of that that there would be like a, an even worse effect when you combine that with romance. Yeah. And I'm sorry if I totally screwed up that award thing. I was very much in the outskirts of it. I think it. it was the Hugos. Is that what Yeah, that's what about? it was. Okay, it was I'm going to talk like, about those too. Yeah, there was a lot of sci-fi fans that got so offended that this person won. And they were like, she doesn't deserve to. It's just like, uh, p- not a pity vote. What's it called? It's like a... Uh, it's like a political correct win. Oh, it's like yeah. one of those things. I can't think of my word. Yeah, I don't know. I know what you're talking about, but I can't think of the word mm-hmm. either. But yeah, it's... Sci-fi is something that, and we'll talk on this a little later, is something that has been predominantly ruled over by male authors, yeah. and they have really gatekept mm-hmm. the genre really, really badly until recently, yeah. I would say. And now a lot of women authors especially are writing in sci-fi smutty romance. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you go onto Amazon and just oh Google, and just search for alien romance, <laughs> yeah, it's there's going to be hundreds upon thousands of mm-hmm. results and it's just so many people have made fun and just mm-hmm. like poked and belittled these books but yeah. like ruby dixon for me is a comfort read mm-hmm. she will always be and i love her books yeah. so much i mean i love almost every single alien book i've read minus one or two that were like mm. really out there but um i don't like spaceship stuff see i do <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to hear about the gleaming blinking lights the buttons the, all the big sparkling buttons. buttons and the shiny walkways okay if you're a firefly nerd or a star trekkie like myself oh. star trekkie a trekkie like myself sorry i just kind of did something weird um then yeah this is your episode Ugh. well i'll try to keep it entertaining for you guys red shirt running like team <laughs> jen has no idea what that means i don't get it okay you're wearing a red shirt this is well is that what that is it's more pink no it's got red I'll, I'll send you some articles about the I'm red good. shirt later. Okay. 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 Um, so before we get too far down into the rabbit hole of fangirling about Ruby and not Hoth, I do want to have a brief discussion, brief is in air quotes here, <laughs> of the history of sci-fi. Are we surprised? No. No, we are not. It is a Jackie episode after all. So sci-fi, science fiction, is a wondrous genre that has had a very interesting history and some very interesting reasons as to why readers tend to love it so much. As with most of the tropes we research, outside of, apparently, Fifty Shades, Amish, and Werewolves, there really isn't that much information out there that delves into the psychology and the reasoning behind our obsession with out-of-this-world characters and settings. That's really interesting. Right? Like, I was sure there was going to be, like, all this stuff about why we love aliens Mm -hmm. and why we're so, like, interested in them. Not so much. Because sci-fi is such a beloved genre. Not for me, obviously, but I can't... Uh, like nobody sat down and like armchair psychology this when it comes to literary fiction oh uh, yes. uh, okay i guess maybe sci-fi romance is still too new for yeah, that thought. and it's mm-hmm. like i said it's very belittled put down upon mm-hmm. um and so a lot of people are like oh it's just smut with some aliens in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay so we're gonna do the work for you okay. we're gonna be the armchair psychologist today <laughs> <laughs> and historians um and get into the reasoning behind our obsession um, so that's what we're going to do. And fair warning, this is going to be a huge tangential rabbit hole, or should I say black hole for a few minutes. <laughs> and few minutes again is in air quotes. Um, let's start with the basics. Jen, can you please give us a librarian's initial description as to what today counts as a science fiction novel? 
fake story set in space. Jen hates sci-fi, so. (laughs) (laughs) I don't hate sci-fi. I just, yeah, okay, I'm not a fan. Not a fan. I'm sorry. I don't care about the, there's just too much tech stuff, and I feel, it makes me feel very stupid, and like, I'm not a good science person. But there's not a lot of tech stuff in Ruby Dixon. Exactly. That's why I love it, because they're crashed on a planet where they can't have the tech stuff. It's great. Yeah. So, okay. Science fiction shortened to sci-fi most colloquially, so I'm going to say sci-fi throughout the rest of this, Mm -hmm. um, is a modern genre that deals principally with the impact of actual or imagined science on society or individuals. Um, Imagined science originally meant mostly technology, but it has evolved since into, like, other species Mm -hmm. and other planets and, like, time travel and all that. We'll get into that. The term sci-fi was most likely first coined by Hugo Gernsback in the 1920s. Hugo was an immigrant from Luxembourg whose publication, Amazing Stories, would become one of the most recognizable pulp magazines. A pulp magazine um, is kind of an uh, an evolution of the dime store novels that mm-hmm. we talked about in the history of romance, and it was literally made from paper pulp, so mm-hmm. it's a pulp magazine. Yeah. Hugo's work in furthering the genre and making it as popular as it was through his work as a literary agent, a writer, and a popular spokesperson for science fiction left Hugo as the namesake and the origin of the Hugo Literary Awards today. The Hugos. Oh. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah, look at that. And uh, the Hugos are, for the most part, pretty good in recognizing diversity. I say that with a little bit of a squiggly bit in front of that. I don't know. I really (laughs) genuinely don't know. Yeah. This is not a circle I travel in. I will say they're better than the RWAs. (laughs) And Goodreads. Because Goodread Awards suck this year. Anyways. (laughs) There's my little bit of pettiness for the day. The science fiction genre as a whole, however, can be taken back a little further than the early 20th century. So, Jen, mm-hmm. okay. I'm about to test you. Oh, no. What do you think was one of the earliest examples of a science fiction novel? Mm, maybe something like um, H.G. Wells, uh, the time travel one? Yeah. That oh, really? too far off. Oh, yeah. You're only a couple <laughs> hundred years off. Oh. <laughs> no, not, but seriously, that wasn't that at all. That was a good guess, because okay. I'm going to talk about H.G. Wells. Oh, good. So... First and foremost, one of the earliest books that most um, literary historians and like literature professionals will agree is mm-hmm. a sci-fi is Gulliver's Travels. What? Yeah. Oh, oh that yeah. makes sense. Because like if the ship is like a spaceship and then mm-hmm. the islands are like separate planets and then they're oh. like alien creatures. Yes. Oh. Yes. And there's an even further reason. And that makes even, because like they wouldn't have done space stuff in the, like what exactly. was that, 1700s? So like Except, for them so, that was space. Gulliver's Travels was published in 1726, <laughs> written by Jonathan Swift. Mm-hmm. And this book portrays a satirical travel dialogue, which is often mm. considered as a significant precursor oh. to the modern sci-fi. Oh, that's a really good point. So if you're not familiar not with Gulliver's Travels, Jack Black did a movie adaptation. Mm-hmm. It was pretty fun, you know. Um, but in it, the main character, Gulliver, is stranded at sea after a shipwreck. And shipwrecks are very hot mode for novels at the time. as like a vehicle to get the plot going. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> vehicle, and it's a vehicle. <laughs> but um, <laughs> you're welcome. And Gulliver swims to safety to the lost island of Lilliput. Lilliput is inhabited by little people. Um, however, there are other islands that he visits, like the Brobdingnagian Island, which is inhabited by Brobdingnagians, and they were giants and all that sort of fun stuff. While there, he has multiple adventures, which all serve as political and cultural satire for the time period, for the mm-hmm. 1720s. Now, 
like Jen said, this isn't what we would typically recognize mm-hmm. as sci-fi today. There's no space stuff. Yeah. Right? Space stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, although it does share a lot of common elements with sci-fi that readers will recognize, such as the portrayal of utopian and dystopian oh. societies, quote-unquote outlandish technology, mm-hmm. such as advanced weaponry. So in one of the books, I think it's book four, there's a city in the clouds and the city has been weaponized for defense. Mm. Um, and there's also the depiction of quote-unquote alien cultures and civilizations. So alien at the origin of the word meant other, mm. right? Of other people, other civilizations. So alien meant other. And yep. in this case, the Lilliputs, the Brobdingnagians, mm-hmm. they were other. They were alien. They were unknown. So that was kind of where the idea of aliens started coming into literature. That makes a lot of sense to me. Right? That's really cool. I never yeah. would have put that together. Yeah. That's, That's interesting. I was like looking at the time. I'm like, oh. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess that makes sense because, yeah, I would have said um, other things as well. (laughs) But Swift, it is important to know, and this is going to be a a little bit of a black hole. Bear with me Mm. for a minute. Swift was writing at the height of the Age of Enlightenment, a Mm. time all about evolving and improving the idea of man, here referring to humans, not just male presenting figures. And this time was all about questioning traditional authority through radical change. This time period produced books, essays, inventions, laws, wars, revolution, and most importantly, revolutions, and most importantly for this discussion, the evolution of the scientific method. Mm. Discoveries in healthcare, epidemiology, chemistry, astronomy, physics, criminology, and so many more fields helped to start paving the way for a radical change in thinking, bear with me, that opened readers up to these grand-scale adventures and satires in the books they read. Now, I'm not saying Swift is the very first precursor to sci-fi. There are a few who came before him with, like, the similar themes of dystopia, utopia, that sort of stuff. Um, I mean, John Moore, utopia. Um, Or Thomas Moore, utopia, Mm -hmm. sorry. Don't yell at me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Swift, though, is easily accredited with a work that is most recognizable as an early influence on the genre. Mm -hmm. After Swift, Jen, are you ready for another test? Oh, my God. Okay. I didn't know there would be so many pop quizzes. (laughs) You're doing great. You're doing great, sweetie. (laughs) After Swift, we move into the 19th century, so the 1800s, when things get very interesting in terms of sci-fi. Even more interesting. In 1818... A book that I think everyone can eat. Don't cheat. I'm not. I'm so, I stopped at guess. Okay. Okay. I stopped at guess. In 1818, a book I think everyone can very easily identify as sci-fi mm-hmm. was published. Jen, do you have any ideas? Is that the time travel one? Close. 1818. 1818. Was it, it the, was a dark um, and the stormy one with, night? Oh, Moby. No. Uh, there was a. There was a um, a competition for friends. Got oh, Frankenstein! Together. Frankenstein! Oh God, I'm so dumb. Yeah, it's okay. The year was very specific. They okay. were all written around the same period. Mm-hmm. But so Frankenstein by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. I just said that very wrong. Sorry, Wollstonecraft <laughs> Shelley. Don't hate me again. <laughs> published her nominal work and her debut work, mm-hmm. and today is lauded as one of the mothers of science fiction. I don't think I need to rehash the plot of this tale, but safe to say that there's a scientific protagonist, there's the overarching plot of experimentation, and especially experimentation mm-hmm. through science, and the clear discourse of the other, the alien in society. These make it very clearly science fiction. So, like, 
Frankenstein was literally brought from the dead by yeah. electricity. Mm-hmm. And he was, it was a clear discourse of the other human in society. Somebody who doesn't look the same as everybody mm-hmm. else. Somebody who's outcast because of the way that they look. And that is very much so used in sci-fi. I love that it was a woman who invented it. Right? Was she a teen too when she did it? She was like 19? 18 or something? 18, 19, yeah. something like that. She was mm-hmm. young. Yeah. yeah. I really want to cool. watch the movie with Dakota Fanning now mm-hmm. where she plays her. But um, yeah. So from there, throughout the 19th century, so the 1800s, the genre just kept evolving with authors like Jules Verne, Robert Louis Stevenson, Edgar Rice Burroughs, H.G. Wells. Yay, I got that one. Who would take their stories to a whole new realms of possibility with things like time travel, advanced machinery, odd and alien creatures, and rifts in the space-time continuum. So I'm guessing at this point, there's probably not a lot of kissing stuff yet, though, no. since these are all men and these are all like very serious yeah. people, I'm sure. No, no. obviously not. <laughs> um, sci-fi romance at this time isn't really a thing. Wasn't a thing pretty much at all. Um, <laughs> because as we know from our history of the romance genre episode, I will put the link in the show notes, during the late 18th and early 19th centuries, actually pretty much all of the 19th century, the publishing game was interesting when it came to romance (laughs) to put it lightly gothic thrillers and romanticism gave us characters we can easily recognize as romance characters like heathcliff or darcy Mm -hmm. but they weren't really calling it romance if we remember yes jane austen was around but she wasn't writing quote-unquote romance she was writing a classic Mm -hmm. um and sci-fi well at this point in time i.e pre hugo gurns back in the 1920s sci-fi was contained to the realm of discourse so it was all about like i said it was talking about the other in society it was talking about dystopia it was using it for satire however if we once more call back to the history of the romance genre as a whole you may remember how i said that literary publishing during the 1800s and early 1900s changed with the advent of modern printing paperbound books and especially magazines and dime store novels really pushed for short quick stories that led to escapism and were brightly illustrated what fits that description better than sci-fi Bright, colorful pictures, mm-hmm. cha- weird things that are going to draw people in and just be like, oh, I want to read that. That's so different. I mean, you could have done that with romance and the 18th century version of Fabio. Yeah. I'm just saying. I'm just saying that. 18th century. But you missed out. We could not reveal the collarbone. <laughs> no collarbones in these. <clears throat> So even though they had not fully met yet, i.e. sci-fi and romance hadn't really joined forces, Mm -hmm. at least not in the way readers are familiar with today, science fiction and romance were walking hand in hand along the publishing route. (laughs) I just did a hand gesture for Jen. Um, With the shift to magazines, known as pulp magazines, like I said, and smaller, more traditionally bound paperbacks that we're familiar with today, or not today, but like more familiar with, this is where Hugo Gernsback and his contemporaries step into to the scene so now we're in the 20th century by the way together this group of sci-fi writers pioneered the genre after hugo gernsback started publishing his amazing stories and in 1934 they created the science fiction league a professionally sponsored fan organization with all things sci-fi <laughs> so like the first comic-con it was fanfic before internet <laughs> yes it was comic-con See, fanfic has been around forever yes they would dress up they would have mm. conventions they That's would really like funny. meet and write together and mm-hmm. they like had these retreats like mm-hmm. it sounds it was the golden age of sci-fi that's what a lot of people will call it today it sounds really fun it was also a boys club yeah what a show definitely um but it was really fun because writers were able to get their short stories published and a lot of these writers were young debut authors Mm -hmm. and they were then consumed in mass media they started writing serials because the demand was so huge for these think readers digest Mm -hmm. right and soon these young debut writers became the founding backbone of the genre. They were the ones who created literary groups, conventions, and a genre that, if not well respected by quote unquote literary professionals, was at least recognized as a fan favorite. It's just really funny to me that 
you know, we get a lot of like, oh, and real men wouldn't have done this back in my day. And yet they've been doing these fan fiction conventions oh, yeah. like <laughs> forever. Oh, yeah. There are some <laughs> cosplay was a thing. cosplay <laughs> photographs from like the 1930s mm. of like men in tin foil suits. <laughs> it's great. I'll see if I can find some for the show. It's really funny because it was it was a beautiful. I just thing. love that it's it's a century thing and it's not like a modern thing. Like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, there mm-hmm. were people dressing up as like the octopus. Yeah. <gasps> also, so I just learned this. There is um, a ride in SeaWorld mm-hmm. or Disney World, something like that, that was 20,000 Leagues Before the Sea, Under the Sea, sorry, before it changed into something else. Great story, I know. But like you actually <laughs> took a submarine down under the water and oh, like neat. we're going through like yeah. the whole thing. It looked really cool, but mm-hmm. I guess people were like dying. So, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, don't die at Disney. It's not exactly going to make it the most magical place on Earth. No. Now, of course, um, moving forward, we come to the point in American history where the world became obsessed with space in the final frontier. That is a Star Trek reference, Jen. The period of the Cold War and the space race. If you aren't familiar with these time points, by the 1950s, mid-1950s, the Cold War between the United States and the Soviets had boiled over into every aspect of life. And in 1954, that warlike aspect of weaponry boiled over into the global atmosphere. Mm. On October 4th, 1957, the Soviet R-7 intercontinental ballistic missile, say that ten times fast, (laughs) named Sputnik, became the world's first very artificial satellite and the first ever man-made object to be placed in Earth's orbit. The battle over the final frontier only spiraled from there, and NASA, I'm not going to say what NASA stands for, was launched in 1958. Soon, Neil Armstrong was declaring that it was only one small step for man, and science fiction was running with it. (laughs) That's cute. Thank you. I'm so proud of my puns in this episode. (laughs) Popular demand for space-related materials, not just books, but like all Mm space-related materials, became closely linked with the advent of television, which only increased the popularity of the genre and the rabidness of the fandom. Star Trek, the original series, the best, was launched in 1966. I mean, I love the Chris Pine Star Trek. Don't get me wrong. I mean, whatever you say. Alternate universe. It's great. (laughs) I love it so much. Um, And Star Wars, the original good trilogy, um, (laughs) premiered in 1977. Aliens, creatures, new worlds, fantastic technology, and utopian and dystopian settings became all the rage, and at least in terms of visual media. U.S. box office receipts for science fiction, fantasy, and horror films. Are you ready for this, Jen? Oh my, I've been ready. They jumped from 5% in 1971 Mm -hmm. to nearly 50% by 1982. Oh, that's quick. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's a big jump. Yeah. Oof. And a lot of it had to do with Star Wars and the popularity of Star oh, okay. Wars. And so I think I guess we, George Lucas has yeah, something to blame for. I'm not sure if we mentioned this in our cowboy episode, but Star Wars is actually um, kind of a spaghetti western. Yeah. So I thought it was like half samurai, half cowboy. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's what made it so popular and so consumable in the mass media. And with Star Wars and Star Trek kind of portraying these very familiar themes, at least in terms of like tropes. Mm-hmm. Um, that is what really helped to keep fueling the push for more sci-fi throughout the 80s and fantasy and horror, mm-hmm. but especially sci-fi fantasy. Well, that was a lot of sci-fi stuff there, and we <laughs> know I'm not the biggest fan, so mm-hmm. uh, come on. Like, where's the romance stuff, Jackie? <laughs> this is a romance podcast. Give me my romance back. Okay, okay. I was getting there. I swear. Mm-hmm. Like, speed it in. I, I go. swear. You know I have to nerd out for a little <laughs> bit. Um, a lot of these early sci-fis did have romance in them. Mm-hmm. 
to a degree. Mm. Um, a lot of them were, of course, written by men. Oh, God. The sci-fi league imagine. and other similar sci-fi organizations were notorious for gatekeeping. Like I said, only men were... Oh, I didn't say this, actually. Only men were allowed into the league oh. um, for a very long period. Ew. I want to say up until the 90s. The 90s? Yeah. It was 1990? A, mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Ew. Mm-hmm. Ew. It was a very So they didn't, period. like, Octavia Butler come in? No. <gasps> I'm going to have to verify the date. I don't remember the exact date, but <sighs> in my brain it said the 80s or 90s. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, you knew there speechless. was a reason why I did not like sci-fi. <laughs> but... <laughs> Oh, oh, not but. And of course, anything, quote, unquote, a woman wrote couldn't possibly be literature, right? Oh, God. I can only imagine what their sex scenes looked like. Painful. The, well, like, um, you know, if today we have, like, the bad sex award for, oh, like, the really they bad. they were so bad. <laughs> it was so painful. Um, I remember reading this one book. It was published in the 80s, and it was about a race of lizard people. Um, mm-hmm. And there was another planet, and the lizard people were kidnapping humans for sex slaves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it was... <laughs> it was the most misogynistic scenes I had ever read. Mm-hmm. And it was a woman alien, too. That's all I have to say about that. Um, that being said, a lot of these stories had romance subplots. But it was very muddy. At the time, or I should say nowadays, we can very easily identify what is sci-fi and what is sci-fi romance. Easy, right? Mm-hmm. Just look for the blue alien on the cover. <laughs> um, <laughs> but point. back then, where a lot of books had romance even if it was front and center to the plot like isaac asimov's in the god themselves in 1972 or time enough for love by robert henlein henlein however you say his last name in 1973 the romance still wasn't considered important even though it was central to the plot it wasn't important Mm -hmm. and like i've said a lot of these have been written by men Mm -hmm. so that was part of the problem too (laughs) to be frank um of course during this period we did have women publishing but they weren't really publishing in Mm sci-fi we did have octavia butler but she wasn't that popular at the time not until later i want to say like the mid 90s that she really really did romance she was just a straight up sci-fi yeah she's sci-fi and speculative fiction Mm -hmm. um but the most the majority of the books that were being published outside of like pure romance at this point in time seem to be focused on literary fiction like Maya Angelou, Harper Lee, and Joan Didion. Women were trying to break into this sphere and they were trying to break into sci-fi publishing, but they were having a very difficult time thanks to the gatekeeping Mm -hmm. and being strongly presided over by the male sphere. I mean, do you think in general it just, it wasn't, it was too early for it to combine? Because if they're so busy just breaking into sci-fi in general, and romance at this point is still very much like the bodice ripper. Mm Mm-hmm. So maybe we should be grateful we don't have a lot of classic sci-fi romances of aliens raping people. Yes. (laughs) True warning. Yeah, I I wonder if it's just like it wasn't really meant to be yet at this time period. You know, it still needed, like things needed to kind of like marinate. Yes. Before it could come to fruition. That's actually a good segue because this was the period of women's liberation movement. Mm -hmm. When women were breaking through, they were trying to really push and change um, the role of women in American society and really trying to break into new spheres like Mm -hmm. publishing, like sci-fi. And there are a couple good books out there to read if you want to know more. I'll link them in the show notes. But... During this time period, what it meant to be a woman in American society and what it meant to publish in romancing was starting to shift. Mm -hmm. So, yes, we don't see sci-fi romance at this point in time because it was too early because we were still trying to just break into the scene in general. general. (laughs) In general. Um, (laughs) So it it wasn't happening yet. And... Mm -hmm. 
the internet wasn't around yet. Yeah. There's a little hint for you. Mm-hmm. So, um, suffice to say, while there were romance storylines usually happening in sci-fi books prior to the 1980s, there was still little to, little to no mass-produced romance books that had a sci-fi plot. But then, in 1982, something beautiful and wonderful happened. Do you want to know what that was, Jen? Uh, did Jane Castle start writing? Not yet. Or like Johanna Lindsay? She was writing westerns. No. I, she, I did read an alien by her, though. Yes. Yeah. I think She's that done was in 1994. Oh, so it's not until the 90s. I'm going to talk starts. about that in a few okay. minutes. Okay. Sorry. It's okay. But I know what um, happens. I know what happens. But no, in 1982, our very first official torrid love affair between a human woman and an alien creature oh, is published. Oh, which one is this one? Mrs. Caliban. I've never heard of that one. I know. So if you've ever seen the movie Shape of Water, <laughs> this book inspired Shape of Water. Oh, okay. Cool. Guillermo de Tormo's book. Er, okay. Movie. Um, this book, Mrs. Caliban, was written by Rachel Ingalls, 1982, and tells the story of a quote-unquote bored 1950s housewife. Vomit. Mm-hmm. Um, Dorothy Caliban meets a creature named Larry. The creature's name is Larry? Larry. That is the most unalien name I've ever heard. Most Larry the alien? Unromantic Ugh. name. <laughs> I hate the name Larry. No um, offense to Larry's out there. I just don't think it's a very good name. Larry. It's also, it just looks weird when you look like, at it. Like, Lawrence Larry. is okay, but then, like, like you Lawrence. can't ever give him a nickname. Law. Or they have to be like, yeah, they have to be like a cop character Ernst. and be like, I take the law into my own hands. <laughs> but in this book, Larry appears at Dorothy's door seeking asylum from his scientist torturers after a successful but bi- but violent escape from a nearby laboratory. Save for Larry's froggish head and green brown <laughs> skin, he, he just looks like a normal man. Okay. You know, he's just got a big head and weird skin color. Mm-hmm. Um... However, radio reports say that he is a murderous monster. Dorothy, however, sympathizes with Larry's plate. She is a loner herself. She is a bored housewife. And she agrees to hide him. She harbors him in her house. Um, They quickly fall in love because her husband is never home because it's the 1950s. And yes, there are intimate moments, including an ocean scene. Like intimate, intimate? Like intimate? It's not like graphic like where we're used to, but... Yeah. That's kind of funny because don't frogs reproduce by like... Asexually. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's like budding. Yeah. He's a, he, he just looks like a frog man, okay? <laughs> it's Jurassic Park. <laughs> From there on, at least as far as my research shows, again, there still really isn't much in the way of alien lovers, at least in the mainstream. In the 1980s and 1990s, like with the rest of romance publishing, it is interesting because, again, there's a lot of books published with the strong romance subplots like Mm -hmm. Anne McCaffrey's The Rowan in 1990 or really any of Anne McCaffrey's book during this time period all pretty much have a romance subplot regardless of Adrian she's writing for. Dragon Riders of Pern, Perth, Pern, Pern was one of my first uh, Mm -hmm. dragon books I ever read and I still love that series. Mm -hmm. I love it so much. What is interesting, though, is that a lot of these sci-fis from the late 80s and 90s feel to me more like fantasy science fiction. And I read a lot of fantasy. Jen doesn't read as much as I do. Yeah, used at least to. high fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. So a, a lot ago. of the writing feels very, like, fantastical and the settings feel very fantastical. Mm. Um, and the genres seem to be evolving at the same, like, pace and the same speed through the 80s and 90s. Fantasy and sci-fi. Um, and romance trying to break their way in. Hmm. Both of them were growing in readership and popularity. And, of course, popular media like Star Trek, Star Wars, The Labyrinth with David Bowie um, were increasing demand for fantasy and sci-fi materials. 
New authors were stepping into the scene as original members of the Sci-Fi League and the older gatekeepers stepped aside, aka they died, and new plot devices, storylines, and imaginative scenarios were being brought forward into these genres. So I did what all savvy romance nerds (laughs) need to do. And I dug for some of the earliest examples of what we would consider to be scientific romances Mm. during this time period. And you know what? I couldn't find any because I was using apparently the wrong search terms. Oh, yeah. What were your search terms? I was using scientific romance, Mm -hmm. sci-fi romance, sci-fi comma romance, Boolean search, scientific fiction, Boolean comma romance, nothing. Mm. You know what I had to search for? Futuristic romance. Oh, okay. Or paranormal romance. Um, And then I sorted by date to look back for things that were recognizably sci-fi and romance and not just paranormal. Um, I know you have something to say about me having to search for paranormal. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if it's smart. Just off the top of my head, I'm kind of wondering. I mean, like in my paranormal episode, we talked about how this all fit under the paranormal umbrella Mm -hmm. and... Especially during this time period. Yeah. this is where women authors were breaking into the different romance publishing. One of my thoughts, and I haven't seen this anywhere online, just kind of popped into my head while you were talking. Do you think anything at all plays into the stereotype that women aren't interested in science? Hmm. So maybe publishers were scared to advertise things as sci-fi romance because, hey, women don't like science. That's a really good point. So I'm wondering. I think you're onto something. So, yeah, you know, you shove them into paranormal because, like, hey, women like vampires and stuff, right? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that was the the sentiment at the time. Vampires were sexy. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Back in. No, when did she? Yeah, 90s. I thought late 90s, though. 96? Something. But I'm wondering if maybe that has a little something to do with all of this. Because now that I'm I'm sitting here and thinking about it, I've talked before, my first romance novel was like I was in sixth grade. I stole all of my mother's like Jane Castles and Jane Ann Krentz, I think, had a really early one under her own name. Joanna mm-hmm. Lindsay did one. I'm going to get to those in a couple seconds, yeah. Yeah, I've read those and I guess I they never occurred to me to be sci-fi romance. And I, The Vampire Lestat was published in 1985. October 31st, oh, 1985. Okay. Yeah, so, maybe, yeah, maybe for whatever reason it was safer for women to... Not safer, but maybe it was, it was more acceptable yeah. for women to be more into like the paranormal or the fantasy side. And then maybe people were just like, oh, it'll be too technical for her. She won't like the spaceships. Because, too, if we look at horror, mostly it was male authors no. writing horror. Mm-hmm. So it's like paranormal was maybe like a safe zone. A female yeah. gaze of horror, I guess mm-hmm. we can say. And it was a way to like for them to write about it yeah. while not having to, well, while not being accepted into the horror community. Yeah. It was like something close they could get to. Yeah. And so sci-fi is where sci-fi, sorry, paranormal romance is where we start mm-hmm. seeing sci-fi elements start to creep in in the 90s. So, with the authors that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if that's smart or not, that's just something that kind of appeared yeah, to me. I've never read that ever before. Well, that's interesting because now we always argue for women in STEM, right? Yeah. Science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and there's a lot of romance um books recently Today. in like the past yeah. five years or so that have pushed for that and i think it's even linking now into the mainstream i've seen a lot more characters that are scientists i've seen a lot more characters working in laboratories we've yeah. got like the love hypnosis the the rilo fanfic love one. hypothesis yeah like they're really massive Raylo. whatever they're really massive things now and i wonder in the 90s if we just weren't ready to categorize yeah. it under sci-fi because women won't buy it women are, are oh. have fragile brains to be fair i don't like science either i probably wouldn't have bought it but <laughs> 
I mean, if it had a vampire in it, you would have bought it. Yeah, maybe. Maybe I would buy a vampire sci-fi. I yeah. don't know. Interesting. That's mm-hmm. a very interesting point. Thank you. I like it. <laughs> Brain's working. Mine's what not. What I'm here for. <laughs> um, I'm really not surprised that sci-fi was creeping in through the paranormal yeah. sphere. That makes sense when um, you put it that way. Just because it makes sense for sci-fi romance mm-hmm. to involve out of the paranormal romance, like we said. Um because it was easier for women, as I was just saying, to write into the paranormal sphere than to write into the sci-fi sphere. Thanks to all the gatekeeping. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that, what I mean is paranormal was already tackling themes like monsters, ghosts, mm-hmm. supernatural creatures. Time travel was appearing in paranormal oh, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and time travel is something that's sci-fi, right? Like that's a sci-fi motif. Mm-hmm. Um, so to start adding advanced technology and space elements into paranormal romance... I feel was a very yeah. easy stretch for books and authors mm-hmm. and for readers too. Yeah. Um, because these authors were good. They knew how to sprinkle it in. They knew how to make it believable for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, because it evolved out of paranormal, it only makes sense that romance authors known for their paranormal works were the ones to start venturing into the world of sci-fi romance. Right, mm-hmm. Jen? I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I can see too, if you start off in paranormal, if you want to ever stretch yourself, if you want to do something new and you're still not interested in contemporary, you could probably do a lot of kind of world building with sci-fi yeah like you can make up a lot of rules that are not gonna go by like a contemporary world ruby dixon yeah, i just exactly. realized she started with bear shifters and yeah. went to aliens yeah exactly i think for some people it's just kind of like a natural progression yeah interesting we should have asked her that i did oh yes <laughs> 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 all right so the first true sci-fi romances i was able to find using futuristic romance and paranormal romance as a conjoined search term mm-hmm. and what i would clearly label as sci-fi romance came from jane castle yeah aka jane and Kratz, one of my favorites um written in 1986 and it was the lost colony romance series in the series there are shifters but they're portrayed as alien shifters mm-hmm. and we're talking about like actual space aliens now not like other aliens yeah um we have alien worlds magical races which is why the fantasy starts kind of blending in and epic plots Mm -hmm. like i said there's this really interesting blend of paranormal fantasy and sci-fi all coming together all at the same time um we also see a lot of time travel romance making its way into the paranormal and sci-fi and even the historical sphere at this time like outlander Mm -hmm. or joanna Lindsay, like you said because she's got time traveling vikings and other things going on she does have alien vikings too that's true she was in her it's the barbarians one something like that yeah yeah she was big into her vikings any kind of variation yeah i'm surprised she didn't do a viking cowboy yeah. It would have worked. She could have done it. I would have trusted in her. I would she could have done yeah. it. Joanna Lindsay. Rip Joanna Lindsay. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know if I would categorize these as sci-fi historical for Joanna Lindsay or Outlander. Outlander is usually historical, but it's time travel, which is sci-fi. I'd wonder what she would have said. I wonder if she ever talked about it. I wish I had looked that up, but. We need to contact our ghost. Yeah. <laughs> Paranormal. <laughs> <laughs> for that one. And really, that's pretty much how sci-fi romance goes until, as usual, post-9-11. Everything changes. Of course. We've made this argument a thousand times, and we'll continue to make it a thousand more times. In the early 2000s, there was a shift in the publishing sphere. If you've never heard our theories on this before, go listen to like our very first episode. (laughs) Basically. Sorry for the trauma. Every other episode, (laughs) basically. (laughs) Yeah, we talk about this in pretty much every episode. Well, it's such a major shift in the world. It is. And And it's an obvious shift, at least to us. Yeah. I'm really curious what COVID's going to do next. Because that feels like the next biggest kind of thing since 9-11. Yeah. What it's gonna leave us mm-hmm. looking for? I mean, ebooks, e romance, e romance. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I think that's gonna be the next thing. Anyways, what's well, already been the thing? Yeah, but 
I asked Ruby that question. Oh, too, oh cool, so. cool, cool. Sorry, sorry. Um, so in case you've never heard our theory before, here's the nitty gritty, the DL, if you will, because we're cool kids and we say DL. Uh, <laughs> Coast 9-11, so September 11th, 2001, the world wanted different heroes and heroines. They wanted bigger, readers wanted bigger plots, world-saving characters, and something that felt escapist and could take their mind off of the global stage, right? Mm. They wanted to escape. They wanted to read things that would help them escape. During this time, we start seeing books like Starking by Susan Grant, um, books that... A book that would pioneer the trope like Faded Mates and Intergalactic Species, mating with human women, or at least other alien women. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was kind of how things started appearing in the sci-fi romance world. And I would also like to propose at this time period, there was a shift in terms of steam Mm -hmm. and how steamy books could be. And I would like to attribute that in part, at least, and this is a new one, bear with me, Jen, Okay. um, to the start of the fourth wave of feminism. That began in 2012. I don't know. I read some steamy things, but way before I should have. But if, yeah, that's why I, I was like, oh, there's that. a lot of steam. But I'm thinking in I'm terms like our... of like what we read for steam, like how it was portrayed in the books. So what, going from like half a page to like a whole chapter of steam? I was thinking more like the acts that are portrayed. Oh, what, like Fifty Shades? Yeah. Like BDSM stuff? Yeah. I don't know. I think it would depend. I don't know. If, mm. Maybe it was just more an idea of things making their way into the mainstream. I mean, that, yeah, spaces. there's definitely like a, I mean, yeah, we talked about the Nama. There's been like a huge hypersexualization of yeah. of the culture in general. Um, yeah. That was one of the reasons why Amish got so popular. But I really feel that the fourth wave of feminism, um, which started in 2012 and of course would be furthered with events in the political sphere in 2016 and then 2017 with the Weinstein case, um, there was kind of this new. At least as somebody who grew up during this time period, I feel like there was a change in the way we embraced our sexuality as women and the way that we portrayed things, especially in terms of the female gaze, Mm. which as women writers and readers and criticizers, wow, I just critiques, critics, wow, I just forgot how to talk. I'm sorry. But as those types of readers, we've always been aware of the female gaze, but I don't think it's been really put into terms and put into like theory until recently. I, don't know. I haven't become aware of it until like within the past couple of years. I don't know. I'm gonna have to think about that one. Okay. Okay. I don't know. So that's fine. That was a big one. I know. I just kind of jumped this on you. So. No, it's okay. I just I didn't even know we were. Okay. It's a theory. It's not. Yeah, anything. I know. It's a Jackie. Th- <laughs> it's a Jackie theory, not a raging romantics theory. It's just like the hypersexualization. Yeah, I think has really but that's shifted been into overdrive. I don't recently. know. I feel like that's been around for decades. I mean, maybe it's like getting. I don't want to use the word worse. It's getting more um, intense maybe every mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. 2012, though, seems too late to to start thinking about it. Because I definitely, like, in hindsight, I read some stuff I should not have read when I was <laughs> way too young. And, I mean, erotica has always existed. And Yeah, that's true. I guess I just wasn't reading it. Yeah. I mean, I read that Anne Rice Sleeping Beauty thing. That's true. That I should not have read. That I should not true. read that now at this age. That is true. <laughs> I just think, too, it's become more prevalent in the past decade I mean, or so. I think it might be more, maybe the, the word you're looking for is it's more acceptable in mainstream. Yeah. And like outside of those kind of adult-only spaces. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, you said adult-only and my brain went only oh, fans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, so that's kind of, we had a shift. We had the shift happening there. There were a bunch of shifts happening. Mm-hmm. And there was another shift that happened in 2011. 
Jen, what happened in 2011 the in the romance fub- publishing sphere? Oh, what happened? Oh, uh, Fifty Shades. Fifty Shades. <laughs> Not the recession. <laughs> the recession. I mean, that too, yeah. but... <laughs> no, Fifty Shades of Grey was published in 2011. Oof, and that changed everything. <sighs> it really did. Forever. Forever and ever. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about the book and the sensation it caused in previous episodes. Again, of course, I will link these for you. Please go give them a listen if you haven't before. But just a quick recap, a little trailer for you. Fifty Shades was released first as a fanfic called Master of the Universe on E.L. James's website. When reception got to be exceedingly popular for it, James, after much deliberation and like very careful consideration on her part, released the book as an ebook and a print-on-demand indie pub in 2011. The insane popularity of this book with a new subset of romance readers, namely white 30-something women who weren't into their mother's dated bodice rippers, were largely devouring these steamier books in a new electronic formats. The popularity of e-readers like Nook and Kindle, which first came onto the scene in 2008 and 2009, meant that the now new romance readers who were picking up their quote-unquote, and we hate this term, mommy porn, um, didn't have to worry about the covers of their books being so obvious. They didn't have to feel ashamed to read romance. In fact, it kind of came to be like a fun little secret of like, oh, what book is on your Kindle today? It's like, oh, it has handcuffs on the cover. <laughs> now we're like, it's got an alien with a spur on the car. Um, and so romance popularity took another huge shift. Publishers, thanks to the success of Fifty Shades and the growth of demand for e-readers, especially from romance readers, realized how lucrative romance publishing had the potential to be, especially in the electronic sphere. And they started pushing for more. They started asking for more authors, more plots. I won't say more diverse plots because there's a (laughs) lot of the same stuff happening, at least in traditional publishing. In indie publishing, though, we had another great thing happen. With Kindle Direct Publishing, KDP. And this is a little preview of our publishing month that is coming up here in a little Mm -hmm. bit. KDP is the software that allows authors to directly publish their works or their books to the Kindle library for readers to purchase and download as ebooks. This was also launched in 2007 and Kindle Unlimited started in 2014, which feels really late, but I guess it makes sense. No, that sounds about right, considering when they started doing Kindles and ebooks, and yeah. we had to get through the whole, oh, people won't switch to this, and then suddenly, oh, everybody's switching to this. Yeah, yeah. And especially with KDP, the authors were able to directly publish. They didn't have to go through the middleman mm-hmm. of the agent and then to the publisher, and then the publisher wasn't, like, vastly scrapping everything, and they had to deal with gatekeeping and all that sort of stuff. They were mm-hmm. able to immediately publish their things. Mm-hmm. Of course, there are formats and things you have to pay attention to, and there's a whole bunch of issues we'll, we'll get into in our publishing episode, but they were able to publish pretty much whatever they wanted and as we all know from basic economics we have the carrot and the stick the carrot are the books that do well and as they do well readers want more writers are going to write more of those trick mm-hmm. tropes the stick the ones that don't do well they're going to flop and then they're going to sit there and nobody's going to read them and nobody's going to write them sad. right exactly is it sad though <laughs> some of them <laughs> um The long and short of this all is that the growth of technology and the ease with which indie authors were able to publish and make money through platforms such as KDP um, and other like fanfic writing websites, um, more and more books were being released in ebooks. And without the gatekeepers of traditional publishing, boundaries were being pushed. That's true. Yes. And then in 2015, we had the (gasps) best thing ever. (gasps) Ice Planet Barbarians was published through Kindle Unlimited. (laughs) I mean, I will say it kind of sounds like you're saying Ruby Dixon is like a benchmark for everybody, not just us this way, but I like it. I'll take it. I mean, if the shoe fits. (laughs) 
okay, listen, I'm not crediting Ruby Dixon with pushing the genre to where it is today, but, but, yeah. Ice Planet Barbarians, Ice Home, Corsairs, and Reeseverse mm-hmm. all definitely helped to further oh, yeah. the genre. I feel like now when I see all this sci-fi romance on my feed and in my recommendeds, it's like, it's very Ruben, Ruby Dixon-esque to me. Yes. I mean, they're not going to copy her, they're not plagiarizing, right. but I think she's introduced a lot of new kind of tropes into yes. like the old sci-fi universe and she's obviously so popular a lot of people are trying to kind of jump, jump on her success the way they did with Fifty Shades. Yeah. So. Yeah. And like you said, a lot of the things that she wrote about, I couldn't find anything really appearing earlier. So yeah. like the symbiote, which is what started her whole journey into Ice Planet Barbarians, mm-hmm. I'd never really read that before. And in all my research, I couldn't really find anything that came before that that mm-hmm. really had the same idea. Or the faded mates with the symbiote on an alien planet, that yeah, sort of thing. That's and maybe pretty Maybe I just mm-hmm. need to read more 80s sci-fi written by male authors, which <laughs> I don't want to. No, thank you. But, I mean, other authors like Anna Hackett, Alana Andrews, Alona Alana, I apologize, and Kalista Sky have also stepped into mm, the top the Amazon great. publishers. They're all good. She's the one that does the cavemen, right? Who? Kalista? Yes. Hmm. Kalisto does um, The Cavemen, Anna Hackett does The Gladiators, and Alona does a really interesting blend of sci-fi and fantasy. Hmm. So, And there's like witches and paranormal in her stuff too. And that, dear listeners, brings us into the era that science fiction romance truly began to bloom in. With all the aliens, spaceships, galactic buddies, spurs, fur, tales, and interdimensional travel any sci-fi nerd like myself could truly long for. Since 2015, sci-fi romance has only continued to grow and expand, and thanks to social media platforms like Instagram and TikTok in recent years, authors like Ruby Dixon have been able to reach a whole new set of readers, and these readers are rabid. Like, they want it, and they want it now. Oh, yeah, they're real dedicated. Yes. Maybe that's a nice way to put it. They're very enthusiastic. They want what they want, and they want more. They want more. They want to gorge themselves. <laughs> yes. And I think that leads us quite nicely to Ruby Dixon. Woo! And we're going to have to cut this episode off and do it next time. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Evil laugh. <laughs> Don't worry, guys. We will go into Ruby Dixon's interview in the next full-length episode. So make sure to tune in then or listen if you're sometime in the future. Hello, time-traveling <laughs> friends in the future. Nice to meet you. Um, to get a sneak peek into her writing method, her books, inspiration, and where she thinks sci-fi romance might be traveling towards. I am really super excited. Thank you so much, Ruby Dixon. We're yes. really excited to read it. So much. Ah! So excited to talk about it. So excited to share it with you. Mm-hmm. There were some words of wisdom in there. That's that's all I'm going to say. I just, I'm so, I feel so unworthy. Like, she wasted her really valuable time She didn't on waste us. it. She, she gave us a Christmas present. <laughs> a not poison day present. <laughs> That's a reference to the books. Go read them. Um, Jen, have we learned anything today? No. Okay. I mean, yeah, we learned a lot. I just, I still. I saw your eyes glazing over it. No, a few it's points. not that they were glazing. It's just oh, sci fi. Just... <laughs> At least with the cowboy stuff, I know why I don't necessarily like it. Sci fi just makes me feel dumb. Oh, you're not <laughs> like, dumb. I'm just like, don't make me read about science stuff. And I think, too, that's what's fun. And we'll talk about the future of sci-fi romance. But Mm -hmm. it's evolved beyond the technology. And now it's more, I think, about exploring those, like, alien civilizations. I just downloaded one where it's, like, an archaeologist on an alien planet. And Mm -hmm. her and her alien friend have to, like, survive. And I'm like, I'm for that. Mm -hmm. I'm all for that. So that'll be a fun. But basically, sci-fi has come a really long way in terms of publishing and acceptance since it was first conceived of as a genre when it was pretty much written by all white people it's still mostly written by all white people but um i think it's only going to keep going from here 
Science fiction has so many things it can explore, all under the guise of like cool tech and different species and intergalactic pairings. So we can talk about issues of classism, racism, racism, socialism, all the isms, diversity, and gender. These are all fertile grounds for space and time traveling characters, and I'm really excited to see where we're heading towards in the future. It's a really beautiful note to end on. Thank you, thank you. I thought so. And on that note, folks, happy New Year once again. May your romance be spicy, and all of your books out of this world. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny let me know if i babbled too much and did not make any sense with all my theories yes please thank you jen what do we always say right on bye guys bye.